Good evening. Welcome to Wednesday evening chapel. Uh, it warmed up for us today compared to last night. Aren't you glad? Uh, I think we're waiting on a couple of classes, which gives me a chance to take care of something I wanted to do anyway. Everybody have your reading thing? The gospel reading for this evening, the first of the gospel readings for this evening, involves words that are just going to trip us all up. Okay, so I want us to practice. Okay, in the third line, at the end of it, we're going to pronounce that ituria. Okay, so say that with me. Ituria. Okay. Okay, then the second word in the next line, trachonitis. Okay. Okay, did I say that right? Okay. Where's Dan Powers? Did I say that right? Did that work? Trachonitis? Okay. Okay, and then the name of the person is? Lysanias. Okay, so I, I didn't want to, I knew that we were going to have trouble with those, and so now that we've taken, taken care of it, um, when we get to them, we won't have to go, <laughs> okay, we're just, we're just ready to go. It is the second of our Advent chapels. The theme for this one is that we are preparing for the coming Messiah. I took a vote last night. I want to make sure that we're all, in, all unanimous. The Messiah has come once. Yes? All in favor say aye. And the Messiah is going to come again. Yes? Okay. And so last night we lit this first candle to signify the fact that we are looking for his coming. Waiting for it, longing for it, looking for it. Well, we all know that we've got to do more than just look. Uh, we have to get ready. Uh, one of the Christmas carols we sing is, Let every heart prepare him room. Well, do we? Do we? And so the focus of the service for the evening, the two gospel readings, the uh, Christmas carols that we'll sing, and the preaching from, uh, of the word from Dr. King, all of those are going to help us in our preparation for him. Because he is coming, yes? Yeah. This will just help us in a special way. So I'm going to light the second candle. And it's going to signify that we are in the process of preparing for his coming. All in favor say aye. Aye. Uh, All in favor say amen. 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 Okay, stand and let's read this first reading together. I want us to read the first passage from Luke, Luke 3, verses 1 through 6. I want us to read it in unison. Let's read together. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip, ruler of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, ruler of Abilene, During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, 
the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The hymn, the carol that we're going to sing is probably the oldest one uh, that we'll sing all season. And I have a hunch you may not know it. So let me sing through it, through it once and I sing after me. Let all mortal flesh keep silence. Sing that with me. Let all mortal flesh keep silence. And the next phrase. And with fear and trembling stand. Sing that with me. And with fear and trembling stand. The next phrase sounds like the first one. Ponder nothing earthly minded. Again. Ponder nothing earthly minded. For with blessing in his hand. For with blessing in his hand, Christ our God to earth descendeth. Christ our God to earth descendeth. Our full homage to demand. Our full homage to demand. Okay, let's sing it from the top. Let all mortal flesh keep silence. And with fear and trembling stand. Ponder nothing
second gospel readings on the back and let's read it responsively. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. As he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Thus he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant. That we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us. One more verse. Testament reading. Sorry, you may be seated. The Old Testament reading will be in a moment. Many of you are aware, or soon will be, of how fastidious I am about the format of an exegetical paper. <laughs> of course, you all know that content is given more weight in terms of overall points for the paper. Nevertheless, the format of headings and parenthetical citations and bibliographic entries receives more red ink than most on campus care to see. It begs the question, what difference does it make? Who cares besides the professor? And why is it important? Of course, such concerns raise the larger question, 
of why any rules or forms or traditions are important. Why do the English teachers insist that our subjects and verbs must match in number? Why did my parents instill in me the protocol of referring to men as Mr. and women as Mrs. or Miss? Why should we stop at red lights even when there are no other cars at the intersection? Why do we rehearse the same old scene of the Last Supper when taking communion at church? Of course, there are a number of significant reasons why the forms of our society are important. Written and oral communication would break down without some accepted guidelines. Chaos would develop without obedience to civic laws. And important memories and foundational beliefs may be lost if we don't rehearse them regularly. But among the responses to the question of rules and traditions must be included the concern for demonstrating reverence and devotion. Sometimes we're called to actions and behaviors whose primary purpose is to confer respect on others. The prophet Malachi addresses such a call in relation to God. In preparation for the Lord's return, the prophet announces that a messenger of the Lord will come to judge unfaithfulness and reinstill honor and respect for the Lord. I invite you now to open your Bibles and turn with me to this oracle in Malachi. Malachi chapter 2, last book of the Old Testament. Beginning at verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. And he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former days. Then I will draw near to you for judgment and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes, and you have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Each of the six oracles in Malachi begins with a declaration from the prophet 
followed by a statement of rebuttal inserted in the mouth of the audience. This statement of rebuttal is typically introduced by the phrase, yet you say... Now this pattern is evident in the passage which we just read. The prophet declares, you have wearied the Lord with your words, and then the prophet recounts the audience's rebuttal. Yet you say, how have we worried him? In response, the prophet explains that the children of Israel have wearied God by complaining that evildoers are considered as good in God's eyes and that the Lord even delights in them. Furthermore, they complain that God's justice is absent. The complaint from the children of Israel reflects the frustration and depression of the post-exilic period. Recall, Babylon had overthrown Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and taken the people of Judah into exile. Later, Persia overthrew Babylon, and the people of Judah were allowed to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. All of this was explained by the prophets as the result of God's punishment for their sin and God's subsequent promise of restoration. In relation to this promise of restoration, the prophets had announced that God would return to the temple. And this reappearance of God's presence at the temple was to be accompanied by justice for the righteous and judgment against the wicked. In the post-exilic period of Malachi's day, after the temple had been rebuilt and sacrifices had resumed, the people of Judah were complaining that they did not see this evidence of God having returned to the temple. This was because they witnessed that good people were suffering while wicked people were prospering. So they cried out, Where is the God of justice? As we read in Malachi 2.17. And in response to this cry, the prophet announced that the Lord will come suddenly to his temple and a messenger will prepare the way before him. The post-exilic community of Judah was experiencing a type of in-between time. They knew God had been in his temple in previous days and now after the punishment of exile and after the temple had been rebuilt, they were still waiting for God's return as promised by the prophets. It is this longing which characterizes our own season of Advent. We too find ourselves in a type of in-between time. We believe that Christ came as a child and walked the earth and suffered and died and rose again on our behalf hundreds of years ago. Nevertheless, we await his return as promised in the scriptures. Like the post-exilic community, our anticipation is often overshadowed with depression and frustration. We too see wickedness prosper and the suffering of the innocent. We too wish for the appearance of the God of justice who will set things right and establish his eternal kingdom. The direct response to the complaint of the post-exilic community is found in verse 5 of what we read in Malachi 3. God proclaims through Malachi that the Lord will draw near for judgment against sorcerers, adulterers, those who swear falsely, those who oppress hired workers, the widow and the orphan, and those who thrust aside the alien and those who do not fear God. 
This is the justice which the children of Israel anticipated and for which they had cried out. This is the result of the coming of the Lord to his temple and the action of setting straight that which is wrong in the world. And so Christians today long for the same kind of vindication, anxiously awaiting the return of the Lord and the establishment of justice and righteousness along with judgment against evil. Such an announcement from Malachi was surely welcomed by the post-exilic community. Like a classic prophet, however, Malachi drives the announcement to the point of conviction. He turns the judgment on all the children of Israel, stating in verse 7, You have turned aside from my statutes and not kept them. Thus the justice and judgment of God serves to bring conviction and calls for repentance as the prophet proclaims, Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Verses 5 through 7 of Malachi 3 reflect the foundational content of prophetic literature. That is the announcement of judgment against sin culminating with a call to repentance. The condemnation of idolatry, apostasy, oppression, and injustice are reflected here and in classic prophetic themes, especially evident within the oracles of the 8th century prophets of ancient Israel. The call for righteous living was so strong that it sounded as if the 8th century prophets rejected the forms of the sacrificial system. Isaiah, Amos, Micah, and Hosea each communicate God's disdain for the offerings of bulls and goats, the trampling of his courts in the temple, the celebration of festivals, and even the sound of worship music. This contempt for the forms of temple worship is not because they were done incorrectly, but because they were followed by daily living which reflected wickedness and sin. The prophets implied that performing a perfect sacrifice and then going forth to rob a widow of her land or cheat someone in the marketplace resulted in the nullification and rejection of that perfect sacrifice. Thus the content of faith reflected in the love of God and neighbor served to either affirm or deny the validity of the form of faith reflected in the practices of worship and ritual. So our temptation is to think that as long as our thoughts and actions are righteous, then it's no longer important whether we accommodate the rules and regulations of our faith. After all, we know too well that legalistic attitudes only lead to exclusivism and arrogance and self-righteousness. So consequently, we tend to turn to other extremes by neglecting commandments and traditions. The danger at this end of the spectrum is losing reverence and respect for God. Somehow the post-exilic community of ancient Israel seems to have fallen into this very danger. Part of Malachi's message in preparation for the coming of the Lord to the temple addresses this need to purify the forms of worship. Verses 2 through 4 of chapter 3 in Malachi 
do not speak directly to the kind of judgment and justice for which the people of Judah were crying out. Furthermore, verses 2 through 4 do not conform to the classic prophetic theme reflected in the following verses that we just discussed. In these central words of our oracle, Malachi proclaims that God's messenger will purify and refine the descendants of Levi and the offering of Judah and Jerusalem. Like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap, the messenger of the Lord will cleanse the worship of the children of Israel. The concern expressed in verses 3 and 4 seems to be for right sacrifices and offerings which are pleasing to the Lord. To better understand the problem which led to this very concern, we need to look back into another oracle, the one in chapter 1 of Malachi. The oracle in Malachi 1, 6-14 judges the same Levitical priests for offering polluted sacrifices to the Lord. They're accused of bringing blemished and blind and lame and sick animals for sacrifice. The complaint expressed by the prophet here is not like that of the 8th century prophets who were concerned about the hypocrisy of offering proper sacrifices followed by wicked living. This new complaint is that the form of the sacrifices is not in compliance with the regulations which God stipulated in the law. It should be emphasized, God is not advocating that his children return to legalism and hypocrisy bound to rules and regulations regarding ritual. But rather there's another issue that is at stake here. The neglect and even rebellion reflected in relationship to the legislation regarding ritual demonstrates a lack of reverence for God. The earlier oracle in Malachi 1 concerning the pollution of the sacrificial system clearly cast this problem in terms of lack of respect for God. The oracle begins in verse 6 with the inquiry from the Lord where is the honor due me? Where is the respect due me? In verse 11, the disrespect from the children of Israel is contrasted with the greatness of God's name among the nations who do offer incense and a pure offering. The contrast is repeated in verse 14 in which the Lord proclaims that his name is reverenced among the nations while Israel sacrifices what is blemished to the Lord. Now I have to admit, despite my biases in other realms, that this focus on the form of ritual is a little disturbing. I understand when the scripture stresses my need to check the motives of my heart and the actions of my hands. But I'm a little uncomfortable when it is so concerned about whether I satisfy an accepted rule or ritual or tradition. I prefer to relax about whether I should dress up for a church gathering or work on the clarity of my speech or prepare an inspiring order of worship for church. After all, what really matters is that my heart's in the right place and I make people comfortable. Such consolation, however, is disrupted by texts like this one in Malachi. In fact, Malachi is not the only text 
which promotes this kind of discomfort by emphasizing form and regulations in relationship to God. You recall the story in 1 Samuel of when some individuals from Beth Shemesh peeked into the ark of God and God struck dead 50,000 of the people. Later in 2 Samuel, you remember the story of when Uzzah tried to steady the Ark of the Covenant from falling off of the cart and the Lord struck him dead for touching the holy object. And in the book of Numbers, there's the account of when Moses dishonored God when he struck the rock and the Lord banned him from ever entering the promised land. These accounts are disturbing. Surely the people of Beth Shemesh did not mean to offend God. Did they really deserve such devastation? Surely Yuz's heart was in the right place when he tried to save the ark from falling off the cart. Did he deserve to be struck down? Given all the stress and hardship which Moses endured with such a stubborn people, surely he was worthy of one little moment of weakness. Did he deserve to be restricted from ever entering the land which he had worked so diligently to lead the children of Israel? In each case, as with Malachi, the dominant concern is respect for God. The text makes clear that the Lord calls for honor and reverence before him. In the season of Advent, we anticipate the promised coming of the Lord. We celebrate His coming to restore justice and establish His kingdom. Our anticipation is tempered with conviction which calls us to repentance for our sins. These are the familiar preparations for Advent. But Malachi adds a new dimension to our Advent preparation. He proclaims that the messenger of the Lord will prepare his way through refinement and purification grounded in honoring God. It's apparent that the message in Malachi calls us to honor God with our best. Rather than just getting by with only what is acceptable, we must push ourselves to honor God in all we do. It's not a matter of becoming perfectionist. It's not a reversion to legalism. It's a genuine call to step up to reverencing God in all we do and say. We must examine ourselves. Rather than being influenced by our selfish desires or the pressures of our peers or the relaxed expectations of contemporary society, we must make decisions based on what honors God. This might impact the clothes we wear, the words we speak, the work we accomplish, and even the way we worship. May the Spirit of God inspire and direct our path. And may we bring honor to God in all things as we anticipate His coming.
Our Lord, may the words of our mouths, the meditations of our hearts, and the obedience of our hands be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. We're dismissed. <laughs>